This is Amy Cohen Epstein, founder and executive director of the 20 plus year old nonprofit organization, the Lynn Cohen Foundation, and the SEAM, the series for education and awareness in medicine. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing female founders, entrepreneurs, scientists, doctors, researchers to talk about women's health, wellness, and preventive care. Take a listen. I am so excited this afternoon to be joined by a mother-daughter duo to really get into mental health and talking about how to ask for help, how to, you know, I kind of say it as raise your hand and say, somebody needs to help me. And how I also would love to touch on sort of the mental, physical health combination and how, you know, we think about our, a lot of people think about their physical health and they're really adamant about it, but then sort of let their mental health slide. Um, I'm going to give a brief example that I just wanted to share. One of my oldest son is a freshman in college and he got really sick first semester and he's a smart kid. He knows how to take care of himself, but one of the big, he's fine, but one of the life lessons I hope he learned was I kept saying to him, you need to do this. You need to say something's going on. I can't figure it out. I need help. And I do think a lot of us who are as adults are, you know, have a really difficult time doing that. And then raising a generation of kids who have the ability to sort of find out anything they need at their fingertips um, is not the same thing as asking for help. So I'm just, I'm saying that because I'm so excited to have this conversation. Um, with that, I'm just going to let you two introduce yourself because it's fun to have a duo on here. I am Sophie Regal. I'm a junior at Duke University and the co-author of our new book, Go to Help. Um, I'm a professional speaker and an author, and I go all over the country to talk about why mental health is so important, how do we have these conversations so that they're more comfortable, and now how to ask for help, how to offer help, and how to accept help. And I'm uh, Deborah Grayson Regal, Sophie's mom. I'm in uh, my a billionth year in college, and <laughs> I am an executive coach and a leadership consultant. Uh, I also teach at Columbia Business School. I've taught at Wharton, and I'm starting to do a little work for uh, Duke's Business School as well, which is very convenient. And um, I, most of my uh, professional career has been in helping leaders communicate more effectively, presentation skills, difficult conversations and feedback. And in the last two years, uh, really the way that leaders are needing to communicate differently is how they communicate to themselves as well as how they communicate with uh, even more compassion to the people that they're working with. And so I'm a co-author with Sophie of uh, Go to Help, 31 Strategies to Offer, Ask for and Accept Help. How did you separately or together go down the start down this road? So uh, it takes us back uh, pre-pandemic. So in right before the pandemic, so October 2019, Sophie and I uh, wrote our first book together called Overcoming Overthinking, 36 Ways to Tame Anxiety for Work, School, and Life. Sophie and I both have uh, several anxiety disorders between the two of us, and we decided to write a book together of the strategies that we've used separately and collectively collectively 
uh, on how we manage our own anxiety. And little did we know when this book came out in October 2019 that talking about anxiety, talking about mental health and well being would become the most important topic in the world just a few months later. Um, and so we spent a lot of 2020 uh, talking to everything from colleges to corporations to camps about uh, well-being, mental health, and mental illness. And there was one chapter from the book Overcoming Overthinking that really resonated for people, which became a book. So Sophie, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, basically people were like, okay, we really want to know more about this and and the overachievers that we are we decided instead of writing an article we would just go ahead and write another book uh which took up the entire summer yeah which was a really interesting process but before that i had in 20 20 january of 2019 i had published my first book uh don't tell me to relax which is all about my experience with anxiety and mental illness and things like that um so that's kind of how i got into the topic of mental health and with my mom's expertise in coaching and, and having the professional audience, we, we figured that both of us would be able to relate to a huge wide, wide audience. So you are really good at relating to professionals and parents. And I have the, I have the relationship with the teens and also the parents and just the younger people in general. So together we're able to reach a really wide audience. And what prompted you to be so open about your own experience? Lots of people are, you know, go through, have anxiety or different mental illnesses and or health issues, and then sort of, you know, are less inclined to share it with the world, um, write a book about it in their teens. So that's, you know, beyond impressive, but what, you know, what made you want to be so open? I think I wanted to be the person that I wish I had had for myself. Mm -hmm. I wish like when I was being diagnosed with OCD and panic disorder and things like that, that I had someone to look up to and say, this person got through this, this person is okay. Um, and even though you're never gonna, you're never gonna not have these anxiety disorders, you will be able to be successful um, and creative and do exactly what you wanna do. And I think I just really wanted to show people that despite, and because of having these anxiety disorders, um, I'm a successful human being in both relationships and and school and things like that um so i just wanted people to see that just because you have a mental illness doesn't mean you can't do exactly what you want to do yeah and i'll just add even before that one of the things that had happened was sophie at school in in middle school which ugh, middle school <laughs> middle school middle school, middle school and high school for being yeah, honest yeah Not, and no one looks back and goes that was the best time in my life and the people nobody. that do say that probably not doing much with their life that's, now. That's maybe. right. So when Sophie was in middle school, she had started uh, displaying some of the behaviors that, uh, you know, were associated with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, mm -hmm. and they weren't private behaviors. They were pretty public behaviors. And middle school kids are going to call you out if you're doing anything other than the, the norm. And um, it was really a form of bullying. And Sophie realized that if if what she was experiencing was bullying, but people didn't know they were bullying her because they didn't know it was an illness, right? It's a mental illness that Sophie actually felt obligated to educate. So mm -hmm. Sophie, who was not 
who is a wonderful public speaker now, but it was certainly not something that she loved to do, especially in middle school, worked with her uh, psychologist to put together a presentation to teach her classmates what it is, what OCD is and what it's like to live with it. And yep. that really started. Well, and then after the presentation, everyone came up to me and apologized. And I realized, like I had only spoken for a few minutes, but I realized if I could put this information out into the world, how many people could we really be changing? That's pretty amazing. The best class I took at Duke was public speaking, by the way. If it's there, I recommend it. Um, I actually did a summer program, summer before my senior year of high school and where I was on at Duke and took two college classes and one of them was public speaking. It was like the summer school class and it was the, the, the best class I took by far. Well, I, I will just share with you because I can't not talk about it. So the way that I got into this work was that my high school extracurricular activity was public speaking. Um, and I, I just, every single day after school, practiced public speaking. I went to speech camp in the summer, which is like the loserest Nerd. thing ever. Um, but in fact, one of the people who I regularly competed against is uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, who is uh, a, the Supreme Court nominee. And we used yeah. to compete against each other, you know, in, on, in weekend tournaments across the country. And it's probably <laughs> the best training that I have for the work that I do. Absolutely. And the idea of sort of nerdy stuff to do when we were younger is not the same now. That's like, you know, that's, that, that word is also, you know, should be outlawed or something. It has yeah. such well, difficult- we embrace it. I say that's a joke. We embrace it. Yeah. We embrace it, but there's this, you know, 40 something year old looking back and they're like, oh, it was so nerdy. My son did debate camp every summer, you know, and right. But it's all, it's, it's really young people and adults who are just passionate, you know, and maybe not the mold from Greece or some 1950s movie of what you're supposed to be or look like in high school, which is, I guess, you know, definitely relevant to the conversation too. Um, so what has sort of been the, 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 the moment where you've looked and seen someone connect with you and maybe had a conversation with them or an email with them where you felt those like butterflies in your stomach about the, the life-changing work your book is doing, not maybe for your own self or maybe for that, those people you've, you know, really had that like soul gut, gut connection with. I think just last week we were at a uh, restaurant doing a speaking engagement and there was only, there were only a few people there, but the one person that we really connected with, I honestly believe that we changed his life. Yeah. I um, think we were there because he was there. Yeah. We just didn't know it at the time. You want to explain what happened? Yeah. So this was uh, somebody who had come to, you know, a business lunch with a group of people at a restaurant and one, and all, all men and one by one, all of the men left as we were talking about asking for help and, you know, offering help. And this gentleman stayed and he shared with us that he was in a marriage where he believed that his wife probably needed some help and wasn't getting it. Um, and it was uh, really hurting the relationship. It was really hurting him. It was hurting their daughter. And he started by saying, you know, what do you do when somebody who needs help won't get help? And we have an entire chapter in our book about that. And so we shared some of our insights, uh, but more importantly, we asked him the question that we recommend everybody ask, which is what kind of help do you need right now? 
And he really just wanted to be acknowledged. He didn't want somebody to say like, well, look on the bright side or this too shall pass. None of that stuff. He wanted people to acknowledge his pain um, and to recognize that he was doing what he could for himself and his daughter because his wife is an adult. If she chooses not to get help, that's up to her. And so I think he just really appreciated that we heard him empathized and acknowledged the difficult spot he was in. He was really emotional. Yeah, he was. So I think that's one example. And I'll just share two other things. Another one, Sophie, was when you were speaking at a conference a couple of years ago and um, about the topic of anxiety and one of the survivors oh, yeah, of the yeah, yeah. Parkland school shooting came up to you. She, oh, wow. was, she was in the audience. It was actually my first speaking engagement ever um, in February of 2019. And she came up to me after and she said, I wish that people had spoken to me after, the, after this happened the way you just spoke to me. Like this would have changed lives if we could hear this, um, if all the other teens who were there could hear this. And I just realized that and that was my first speaking engagement. I just realized, wow, what am I in for? This is going to be quite a ride and I'm still in contact with her and I sent her books um, to give to her friends who are are at the school and I didn't quite like you never know who's in your audience you have absolutely no idea um, so you a have to be careful with what you say so that either you don't trigger people and b you just have to realize like even if people if some people aren't paying attention there's someone there who needs to hear what you're saying and that's all that matters. And I would say the third thing that really resonated for both of us was we got a call about six weeks ago asking us um, to be the speakers for Mental Health Awareness Month, which is in May, for um, U.S. Homeland Security first responders. Wow. So these are the people who help everybody first, and we are there to help them understand why they should be asking for help for themselves. And when we heard that, we were like, oh, my God goodness, what, a, what an honor it would yeah. be to do this. Wow. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. And how do you juggle it all? <laughs> how do you stop and sometimes say, okay, I have class or I have other, you know, I have other work. I'm at teaching at multiple business schools. Like, how do you juggle it? Each of you individually and together. I was just thinking about this the other day. You go day. first. I want to I want to learn what you do and I'll, I'll just say same same. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about this the other day because you know, I'm I'm in school full time. I'm doing the speaking and coaching and whatever. Um and I also have another business. I'm a, a part-time reseller, so I go to thrift stores and resell things online and I that's my favorite thing to do. Um and I'm just like a human being who needs to do other things. So I'm I'm juggling a lot of things, but a, I try to nap every day, um, and B, I just try to make, like prioritize and make time for the things that are important. So I know, for example, I have a test, a really big test tomorrow. Um, I know that probably today and tomorrow I shouldn't go to the thrift store. I have to see which is first. And right now, being a student comes first. Um, and other times when school is less hectic, I get to do other things and put and prioritize this or prioritize my other business. Um, but it's really about deciding what's most important and knowing that you can't do everything. Yeah. But I don't know. It's tough. It is tough. And I would say for me, a couple of things. Number one is I um, choose not to do anything that I'm not great at. 
Um, and most things I'm not great at, right? I mean, and, and I say that truly, there is a small <laughs> pile of things, coaching, speaking, training, facilitating, writing, that I'm really, really good at. And I'm going to do those things. And anything that doesn't fall into one of those buckets, I'm going to delegate out. I'm going to hire somebody to do it. I'm going to say no. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is, is maybe a little counterintuitive, which is, um, I would say 80% of the time, I don't work Fridays. And uh, I know it seems like, well, shouldn't you have more work time to juggle it all? But honestly, if I don't have time for me to rest, uh, engage in my very short list of hobbies. Um, uh, and hobbies? I, they're indoor hobbies, right? I know many people think a, a hobby has to be outdoors. My, my hobbies are Name indoors. a hobby. Watching Reading. Shit. Okay, fine, fine, fine. And I know it's a hobby because you don't love reading. So a hobby is something that some people like and some people don't like. Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, so actually taking that time off and usually having three-day weekends allows me that when I'm done playing hard, I'm really ready to work hard and, and I'll do it. And I think both of us have gotten really good at saying no to different things. So for example, all the time I'm, I'm feeling emails people asking me to speak at their organization or do different podcasts or whatever it is. And I can't say yes to everything. So I have to decide what's most important. Um, wh where do I want to put my time and energy? And so that that requires saying no, and it's not fun to say no, but it's, if I didn't say no to anything, I would be completely swamped. So I've got a question for you. Yeah. Okay. You and I have just written a book called Go to Help about offering, asking for and accepting help. How often do you use asking for help as a way to help you navigate it all? All the time. Yeah? What's yeah. an example? Um, I'm constantly asking people to vote. So for example, when I have group projects, I'm delegating and I'm asking people to do their part so that I can do my part and be done with it. Or I'm asking people, if I have a commitment that I really can't make, I'm asking them for A, forgiveness. Um, <laughs> and be like asking them to find a different time that works for my schedule. I often ask my dad to help me with my shipping um, <laughs> when I am shipping out orders because I, I just shipped out like 40 items today and that took two hours to pack up. Um, and sure. if I had, I don't, right now I don't have anyone to help me with that, but um, that is something that I could do. Good answers, I like that. And then the other thing I wanna talk about or segue into is, you know, when you're feeling in a moment where you're overwhelmed or you're giving advice to people who are sort of, I guess, like that gentleman that you spoke to, you know, are sort of too much on their plate or they're suffering from anxiety or a bevy of other things. Have you seen or witnessed yourself how that can translate also into your physical health? So being, you know, super tired, unable to get up, lack of energy, um, oftentimes leads to illness. You know, there's, I've, I mean, the amount of people, especially women that we talk to, I've talked to for 20 years in doing this that, you know, have said, you know, I was diagnosed with something and gosh, you know, like for a couple of years leading up to that, I was, you know, so stressed out or, you know, running in circles and sort of that unrealization of how that manifests itself into our bodies breaking down on our immune system and our ability to fight off, you know, all the things our body on a daily basis does. Have you, 
had experience with that and sort of how do you deal with it? Well, yes, we both definitely had experience about it. And it, it's interesting when I was growing up, um, I very early on in my life was diagnosed with a, a neck tick. So I have a, a repetitive movement in my neck, which is part of an anxiety disorder, but it's so repetitive that I would get a repetitive uh, muscle injury just from having a, a tech in my neck. And so I grew up knowing about the idea of somaticizing, right? That when you have um, you know, a, a mental health challenge, you are likely to feel it in your body. Um, and so I remember when Sophie was little and she was experiencing physical symptoms. And I said to her, Sophie, do you know the word? She was really little. I said, do you know the word for when you experience physical symptoms because of something going on emotionally? And she said, is the word normal? <laughs> Which I loved. And I was like, well, yes, it is really normal. And then I got to teach her about somaticizing. Um, so it's something Sophie and I have um, personally dealt with. Our, our mind-body connection is... Mm -hmm. um, pretty tight. That doesn't mean it's the healthiest, but we both are very well aware of, I am feeling something physical. I am pretty sure there's something psychological going on or wow, I'm aware there's something so psychological going on and it's starting to manifest itself physically. Yeah. Um, and we certainly see this in um, the audiences that, that we talk to. In, in fact, um, I probably the most frequent program that I've led over the last two years is called um, talking to your employees about stress at work or about mental health at work. And there was a great article in Harvard Business Review where they talk about um, a new model for, for APGAR. So if you remember when your babies were born, right, they had mm -hmm. an APGAR test at one minute and five minutes, right? Um, and, and that was to see, did they need any intervention? Well, there is a stress APGAR that these two authors in Harvard Business Review wrote about that I use all the time, um, citing, of course, my research. Um, and the idea behind it is that you may notice somebody's stress by looking at their appearance, their performance, their sense of um, their sense of growth or mm -hmm. spirituality, um, their affect, and then uh, their relationships, and so all of that is the connection between what's going on inside and what you might see on the outside. That's amazing. We need to come up with an acronym. Uh, Apgar. Oh, that is Apgar. That is it. Yep. Oh, yeah. I didn't. Okay. So okay. Okay. I just think yeah. of that when you're yeah when you're talking about the baby. I didn't realize that translated. Yeah, into that's the right. Baby. So uh, right. So appearance, performance. Got growth, it. Yes. and relationships. Okay, got it. Yeah. That makes sense. It did That's the work for us. <laughs> yeah, it was there. Um, oh, I like that a lot. That will go over well when you have your um, talk with um, the first responders. Everything in the government is an acronym. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. When you're feeling FUBAR, right? Yeah, exactly. Here's, yeah. Check your APGAR. Yeah, exactly. I'll tell you later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe we'll save that one for later. Yeah. One of my favorites. Um, so if there's one piece of, you know, like solid either advice or introspection that you really like to leave or give out there, what is it? And it might be, that might be impossible to answer. And you might say, here's just one of many, but especially the difference you're doing, you know, adult coaching, and working in a workplace. And then for you, Sophie, when you're talking more to your contemporaries. I mean, when I, when I always say is, obviously my world is, is women's health and wellness and preventive care 
on a, you know, on the scale, on the talking about women's cancers. And so what I really try and hammer home is know your body, know yourself, know your normal. That's sort of my, know your, what your normal is. And as we've talked about, normal is a wide range. So it's know your normal and where your body feels the most, you know, in sync and healthy. And when you veer out of that normal stand, say something, you know, figure out what it is that's gotten you there. And that might mean going to multiple different people, not taking nothing for an answer and saying, you're fine. You know, really knowing your normal and, and how that changes throughout our lives. You know, Sophie's normal is different than our normal. Your normal when you're in middle school, high school, college, you know, grown up in your, you know, postpartum, post menopause, all these things, these are different normals and sort of really trying to be in touch with that. Um, so how did, how, what would you all say about in terms of sort of mental health and wellness? You know, I would actually say treat your mental health just like your physical health. Um, I, w- I think, for example, if you were to break your leg, you wouldn't be like, ah, it's okay. Everyone's dealing with this. You would immediately go to the doctor and if you need surgery, you get the surgery. Um, but as soon as you're dealing with depression or anxiety, we go into this mindset of it's not that bad. Other people are dealing with things that are worse, um, things like that. And so if we start to treat our mental health like our physical health, we'll actually get the help that we need. Um, and when we have a mindset where we're saying that our physical health and our mental health are comparable or they're, they're similar, um, there's actually a lot less stigma associated with our mental health. I love that. Yeah. No one is gonna, it's not stigmatizing to say, I, I have a cold, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like you'll tell anyone that, but as soon as you say like, I need to go see my therapist, there's kind of a different vibe there. Yeah. That hey, is, are you okay? Or should I be worried about you? Right. Are you dangerous? Are you gonna be able to do your work? All right. those kinds of things. Right. Yeah. And I would say for me, the thing that resonates a lot for me and resonates a lot for the audiences we speak to is that you can have mental illness and also great mental well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so mental illness and mental well-being are related, but not the same thing. And I think Sophie and I are examples of two people who have diagnosed mental illnesses and more often than not have really good mental well-being. So healthy relationships, enjoy what we're doing, connection to the community, um, taking care of our physical health as well. And you can have really crappy mental well-being and no mental illness. And so if you think about it in terms of mental well-being, that feels a lot less stigmatizing and um, it's, it's for everyone. Mental well-being is for everyone. And I would add to that mental awareness like mental health, you know, your own mental health awareness. I think there, you can have that, um, with, you can have mental illness and very strong mental health awareness, yes. right. Or the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find what you're doing to be, I mean, beyond important and significant and impactful, you know, the way I see it too, it's so important for women Um, for everyone, but I'm going to zero in on women. I think we're so often trained from whatever that we take care of everyone and not ourselves. We're just really far down on the list. And I'm thinking of this because you're going to speak to the first first responders. Um, People who are literally trained in their line of work to take care of other people 
generally don't take great care of themselves. And if they do, they prioritize their physical wellness. Mm. So they'll, they'll schedule in, you know, 30, 45 minutes at the gym, um, but not for their, their real mental health and stability and well-being. And I think there's so much stigma in that world. Um, you know, people in the government, people who are, you know, literally just focused and trained on doing for others, whether that's mm-hmm. one person or a community or a city or a country, and they really don't have a, have a deep understanding of their own mental health and awareness and well-being. Um, so I think those are, we don't talk about that very often, um, but I like to talk about it. <laughs> and I'm glad that you all came on so that you could talk about it with me. And I just thank you so much for your time. This was thank so you. much fun to have a mother-daughter duo. And clearly you have the exact same smile and clearly your rapport with each other and how well you get along and understand each other and you know are in sync with each other is really just beautiful to watch. I, you know, coming, my mom passed away when I was a senior at Duke. And so mm. I just think it's, just incredible to see you two together and working together, writing books together. Um, I, my, my assumption is when you're up speaking in front of an audience together, it's, you know, it's a double powwow and it's, <laughs> it's, really so much fun. it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So congratulations. You did Thank an you. amazing job raising an incredible young lady and you're clearly doing an amazing job juggling a lot so don't be afraid to some put some businesses off till after college. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> You'd be more likely to put college off. So no, graduate one, now. One more year. Yeah, one more year. One That's more it. year. One more year. At least you made it through Coach K's tenure. Um, yeah. But thank you both so much. This was so thank wonderful. Thank you so much. Enjoy right. Chapel Hill and your life in the South. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.